Good morning, and thanks for tuning in to RTHK Radio Three. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Today, we talk about Ukraine with Dr. Ariel Cohen, senior research fellow in Russian and Eurasian studies and international energy policy at the Heritage Foundation in Washington D.C. Ariel, welcome. The referendum in the in Crimea took place on Sunday,、uh, March 16, and the result was overwhelmingly in favor of independence from Ukraine. Uh, and unity with Russia.、Uh, obviously, China doesn't want to look like it is condoning a plebiscite in its own ethnic provinces, such as Tibet or Xinjiang, where segments of the local population harbor aspirations to break away. But just like Moscow, Beijing also does not like the type of Western-supported revolution that toppled the previous Ukrainian government.、Um, Moscow has obviously lobbied for Beijing support since it sent since Moscow sent troops to Crimea. What economic, diplomatic, or other sweeteners do you think Moscow has offered to Beijing?、Uh, I think the main thing is the strategic partnership between Beijing and Moscow today. Uh, in opposing the West, I read、um, articles in the Ukrainian—I'm sorry—in the Chinese media, basically supporting the Russian position、uh, on Ukraine and denouncing the West in very harsh、uh, terms. But think about it for a moment:、um, the people of Ukraine protested against real corruption. They protested against promises that were not fulfilled by the government. Yeah, it may look、uh, bad in Beijing, but on the other hand,、uh, this is a strong signal to Beijing to do what is right by the people and not、uh, to condone and tolerate corruption. The so strategic- I think in that respect. The strategic、yes. partnership you were talking about—that's a partnership that Beijing and Russia. In effect, already half. You're, you're saying that the folks in Beijing would much rather maintain that strategic partnership and, and sort of take a united front with Russia against the West. Is that what you're referring to, or has、exactly. Moscow offered more to Beijing? Whether it's you know trade、yeah. commerce.、Uh, I think that the main thing is a strategic partnership and common front. Um, against the United States and to lesser degree against uh, Europe, uh, but we also saw that Europe went very soft on Russia in this particular crisis. Uh, but uh, I do not know; I'm not aware if there was an interaction、uh, between Moscow and Beijing.、Uh, what,、uh, if any, incentives were promised? I will also remind our listeners that Beijing abstained. As it did abstain in the Crimea vote, it abstained in、uh, votes on、um, recognition of independence of、uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia、uh, in 2008,、uh, indicating again that secession is a very sensitive issue uh, for uh, the government in Beijing, and that Russia relates with understanding to the Chinese position because Russia. Did not berate, did not scold uh, Beijing uh, over that issue. Right, right. So certainly, Beijing has remained consistent in the way that it has voted in in the UN on these <laughs> Russian right ac- it's, it's intrusions into other、yeah. countries' territory. Okay, do you? Yeah, and it's it's called dancing and all wedding simultaneously. <laughs> do Do you think that?、Um, Uh, Russia shares China's philosophy of 
what's commonly referred to as non-interference uh, in other countries' internal affairs for the part of the world that is outside of the former Soviet Union. So obviously, we've seen that Russia is unwilling to um, to, to just let things go when it comes to territory in the Ukraine. And obviously, we remember what happened to to Georgia in 2008. But do you think that Russia, on the whole, shares China's philosophy of non-interference when it comes to territory that's elsewhere in the world? Well, first of all, I think the distinction between the former Soviet territory and every other territory is artificial. Because according, again, according to the UN membership, according to the international law, and according to Russia itself, it recognizes sovereignty uh, and it should recognize territorial integrity of uh, countries outside of its own borders. So there's no special status. Uh, for Georgia, Ukraine, Armenia, etc., whereas it's clear that the Russians are pushing these countries to join their sphere of influence, something that vaguely corresponds, or not vaguely, corresponds to the uh, borders of the USSR, the Soviet Union, uh, as well as to the borders of the Tsarist Romanov Empire, with the exception of Finland uh, and Poland, uh, that became independent after the revolution of 1917. Uh, so I think if Russia is talking about interference in internal affairs, um, it is not uh, a clear-cut standing, it's not a clear-cut stance, and we should expect recognizing um, a position that respects sovereignty and territorial integrity, from all Russia's neighbors and other countries by Moscow. How much do you think the Western sanctions on Russia will really hurt, or do you think that given China's voracious appetite for oil and gas that um, it will step up to the plate and open its markets to Russian imports that can go, that cannot now no longer go west? First of all, I have not heard uh, about any European sanctions, and Europe is a big market for Russian gas and for a good amount of Russian oil. About one quarter uh, of oil in Europe comes from Russia through a huge pipeline that goes uh, goes through Ukraine called the Friendship Pipeline, the Druzhba Pipeline. Uh, but having said that, uh, I have not seen Europe saying, oh, we're going to decrease uh, the amount of natural gas or amount of oil. And if they don't do that, then Mr. Putin is laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, if they do do that, uh, it's not so easy to sell that oil and gas to China because you need the infrastructure for that. And there's no sufficient infrastructure, for example, from Western Siberia, the main oil-producing province in Russia that supplies Europe in Siberia. Uh, to China, there are no pipelines. It takes years and years and costs billions of dollars to build these pipelines. So while China has the money to build the pipelines, currently it's uh, building a pipeline uh, to um, northern China, uh, but it's not sufficient uh, to, build, to, to build that pipeline. That pipeline is not sufficient to take all the oil that goes to Europe currently. In terms of natural gas, uh, there, there are negotiations, but there's no pipeline to China 
as far as I understand. Um, and while they're talking about uh, developing huge projects, and China loaned Russia $100 billion uh, to develop its gas and oil, in eastern Siberia, uh, it will take many years and will cost a lot of money. I see. Are, are there divergences in Russia and China's interests that you believe the West has not sufficiently exploited? I think uh, it will probably help to have a dialogue uh, and a discussion uh, between uh, the Chinese authorities and the U.S. and the European authorities about this, uh, because this is kind of a behavior that is not in the interest of the West. Possibly it's not in the interest of China. This is destroying the international order that China benefited so much from, because this is the international order uh, which promotes stability, which promotes foreign investment and developing markets for Chinese products. China developed tremendously in uh, post-Mao uh, era, in uh, starting with Deng Xiaoping and uh, after Deng Xiaoping, uh, and uh, the U.S. provided unpaid public good um, of international security. U.S. taxpayers paid for the U.S. military force. The China may resent, the Chinese uh, military leadership may resent, but it did provide peace. It did provide prosperity. And now we're facing the world, if Russia is not stopped, uh, that Russia set a very bad example. It is an example in which a more powerful country, especially a nuclear-armed state, can push around its neighbors, grab their territory, and leave them unprotected because the United States and the European Union do not provide the necessary protection. This is a world in which the uh, investment flows will decrease, trade will become more risky, the insurance premiums and shipping costs will rise. And this is not good for China from the economic perspective. It may make China uh, smile because the United States is being pushed around by the like of Vladimir Putin. But in terms of economic benefit, it's, of course, harming China as it harms the U.S. and Europe. Okay. Well, we have been speaking with Dr. Ariel Cohen of the Heritage Foundation. Ariel, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Good morning and welcome back to China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. In China's modernization experience, U.S. capital markets have served as a source of lucrative funding and a status symbol for Chinese companies. The list the list of U.S. listed Chinese firms is long and includes companies like Baidu, China Mobile, Sinopec, and many, many others. Soon to join the list will be e-commerce giant Alibaba and Sina Weibo, which is China's answer to Twitter. Both are currently exploring 
a listing in New York. Of course, just because a company has listed in the U.S. doesn't mean that everything afterwards is smooth sailing. What are some of the issues that Chinese companies have faced from U.S. securities regulators, and what should companies like Alibaba and Sina Weibo look out for?、Uh, we are very pleased to speak to Mr. Jim Kreisman today. He is a partner at the law firm of Simpson Thatcher and Bartlett. Jim, hi, welcome. Thanks, Yang. Hi, how are you today? Great. Well, great to have you.、Uh, Simpson Thatcher, just like other Wall Street firms, has represented Chinese clients that have gone IPO in the U.S.、Uh, in fact, one of your, one of the clients that you guys represent、um, is Alibaba.、Uh, but in your practice, you tend to represent these Chinese clients afterwards, after they're already public.、Uh, would you like to tell us a bit about your China practice? Uh, sure thing, Ying.、Uh, I head up Simpson Thatcher's Asia Litigation Practice Group, and I focus almost exclusively on on Chinese companies.、Uh, for the most part, I deal with、uh, companies that、uh, interact either with U.S. regulators, such as the SEC, or uh, get uh, sued or are considered getting sued by shareholders in the U.S. in class actions or shareholder derivative suits. And your China clients、uh, include or have included companies such as、uh, Focus Media, LDK Solar,、uh, Yongye, Yongye International, and and others. What type of issues have your China clients encountered as publicly listed companies in the U.S.? Sure. There's there's a whole host of issues that、uh, Chinese companies run into when they're listed in the U.S. Some of them are very similar to issues that U.S. companies run into, such as allegations, perhaps that the company had information that they didn't disclose to investors in in a timely manner, or that、uh, accounting wasn't handled、uh, in accordance with GAAP.、Uh, but other issues. Seem to be particularly、uh, acute when dealing with the interaction of Chinese business、uh, and the、uh, U.S. legal system. Some of this relates to different、uh, standards of accounting that can apply, different levels of formality、uh, that can apply in terms of corporate governance in in Chinese typical practice versus U.S. typical practice,、uh, the、uh, extent to which. Certain relevant information is is、uh, written versus oral.、Uh, there are differences in the business cultures that can and do regularly come up, and these、uh, often result in either investigations or litigation in the U.S. What sort of differences in the business culture? Well, so for example,、uh, I would say that.、Uh, It is often, in my experience, common even among larger Chinese companies that、uh, significant relationships that those companies have with other companies are more likely to be done on a handshake basis、uh, and based on long-established relationships, and therefore not documented as formally as what one might expect to see in、uh, U.S. business culture, and so. Because the mindset in many instances of regulators or uh, of uh, groups that advocate on behalf of shareholders or lawyers for、uh, plaintiffs for shareholders,、uh, you know, are so used to seeing things done in the typical U.S. manner,、uh, this can lead to misunderstandings and, in some instances, litigation or investigation when people want to know where the document is that demonstrates that a particular thing that a, a Chinese company is saying is in fact true.
Uh, you know, and from the Chinese company's perspective, they, they look at it as the relationship is the more important thing rather than the document, and so they don't understand, in some instances, why it is that someone would be concerned about this. Are your clients surprised by the power that uh, U.S. regulators can exert on their companies once they've gone public in America? I'm sure they're probably some of them are probably in shock by the um, by the bills they have to pay <laughs> in order to be in compliance. But but you know, but given the difference in the regulatory structure in China and and you know and the securities regulations uh, in the U.S., have your clients found themselves to be in shock once they've gone public and figured out you know what what they actually when you advise them what they would need to do and what sort of things they're up against? Well, I, I think that. Uh, I, I would say that there's a certain level of frustration, um, not particularly among my clients, but among a number of Chinese companies that were listed in the U.S. that has frankly led to a number of them uh, going private, voluntarily delisting or pursuing listing in, in other markets. You know, uh, clearly, the costs of compliance with the U.S. regulatory scheme are significantly higher than if, for example, they were pursuing an A-share listing in China and probably uh, higher in, in some ways than if they were listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. I, I think the real surprise, though, for many of our uh, Chinese clients is the nature of the U.S. discovery system, the broad scope of investigation, the fact that plaintiffs in a lawsuit can be entitled to review uh, a very significant portion of a company's documents and have rights to take depositions uh, of folks. You know, more than the power of the regulator, I would say it's the that particular process and procedure that is the biggest uh, surprise in my experience to a lot of uh, the clients that uh, we deal with. Do you think that that aspect of the um whether it's the it's it's not just the regulatory scheme it's actually part of our legal part of the US legal structure right cuz discovery is very much part of the legal structure do you think that aspect of it is overly cumbersome or perhaps overly intrusive for companies that just want to operate in the market and make some money and raise capital well, I guess it depends whose perspective you're looking at. From, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of the U.S. regulators and the U.S. courts, it's not overly intrusive, and it's the same thing everyone else has to put up with. From the perspective of the Chinese, uh, of a number of Chinese companies, particularly if they don't have prior experience with the U.S. capital markets, they, you know, they do feel uh, as if a lot is being uh, asked of them, and uh, I think that there's a the sliding scale. A number of these, a number of our clients have extensive prior experience. Perhaps they've started other companies that have been listed in the U.S. or otherwise, and they know what to expect, and, and others uh, do not. So it's really an education process that starts long before they even start considering a public listing. It's important for their, their lawyers and their advisors to tell them uh, what the U.S. public markets are like and what the advantages and, 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 frankly, disadvantages are, because there are both. We are currently speaking with Mr. Jim Kreisman, a partner at the law firm of Simpson Thatcher and Bartlett. Now, for a company like Alibaba or a company like Sina Weibo, um, they're already quite sophisticated. Sina um, is getting ready to spin off Weibo, but Sina... Um, 
knows the regulatory requirements in the U.S. quite well, as it was the first mainland China-based company to go public on the Nasdaq. And and as far as Alibaba is concerned, um, you know, unlike other internet companies, including U.S. internet companies that have gone public, it's already making a profit. So, um, you know, and so Alibaba is looking at one of the largest IPOs ever. What are so for companies like that? What are some post-IPO warnings that? you know, that that they should keep in mind? Well, there's a there's a variety of, of issues, even for a company that has the best corporate governance and, and that is an extremely successful company. Uh, issues that, that they need to bear in mind when they are China-based and listed in the U.S. markets. Uh, for example, uh, there's been a lot of issues lately with U.S. regulators seeking information from the auditors of Chinese companies and those auditors refusing to provide information because uh, of restrictions that are imposed on them by what, what are called the Chinese state secrecy laws. Uh, these auditing firms, which are affiliates of the big four in the U.S., are often refusing to give the SEC or the uh, the PCAOB in the U.S. access to certain of their records on request, stating that it would be a violation of Chinese law to provide it. This is an issue not just for the auditors, but for the companies. There's also a variety of Chinese privacy law issues that, that come up that people uh, need to think about. And then, of course, there's always the difference between the various uh, accounting standards, which can be technical issues, but uh, uh, need to, you need to make sure that your version of GAAP is consistent with U.S. GAAP reporting standards. And then finally, I, I think a big adjustment is just understanding the, the extent of disclosure that the U.S. market it comes to expect and the level of transparency. Large, sophisticated Chinese companies uh, are often, as I, we said, extremely successful, but they're, they are used to operating in a somewhat uh, a less uh, full-fledged uh, disclosure environment in some instances. And so it, it takes an adjustment uh, with respect to those issues as well. So on this issue um, between the SEC and the big four accounting firms, the ongoing disagreement that the Securities ex- uh, Exchange Commission is having with with the China affiliates of Deloitte, KPMG, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Ernst & Young, um, and you've described it a bit earlier. How is that affecting your current clients that are that that are already publicly listed in the U.S.? Well, for the most part, it has not. It tends to come up more when a client is directly under SEC investigation. And the SEC then subpoenas the work papers of the client's auditor. Uh, you know, fortunately, I'm, I'm not currently in that situation, but I know a lot of people who have been in that situation and are in that situation. Uh, I'll try not to give you too long an answer, but the short answer is the auditors are refusing to provide the information. The SEC has now sued many of the auditors, and in some instances they've sought negative uh, consequences for the issuer 
itself and you know the you, you you feel badly for the issuer because the issuer is hired with you know what they think of as a big four auditor although right. technically they're an independent firm that is just affiliated with the big four and it is beyond their control they cannot get that auditor to voluntarily cooperate uh with the US and you also have to feel a bit bad for the auditor because they they are concerned because the Chinese government has indicated in many instances it does not want them to share their work papers with the US but they run the risk of losing their ability to certify financial statements before the SEC. So they're really in a bit of a conundrum, and frankly, this has become a very political issue. I think the courts are not capable of handling this. This is going to be sorted out and is in the process of being sorted out through diplomatic channels, but I think it's fair to say that it hasn't been completely resolved yet. Right, and if it doesn't get resolved, we could see a point at which these um affiliates of the big four are um i don't know sanctioned probably isn't the right word for it but that they would no longer be able to certify the their auditing yes. results for for the companies that are listed in in this could lead to those companies being delisted from the U.S. stock exchanges. Is that right? That is theoretically correct. They could be barred <laughs> from practicing before the SEC, and then the companies would have to come and bring in substitute auditors who are not barred, but those auditors would need to be, again, auditors who are licensed to practice in the PRC, but by the same token would be willing to provide the information that the other, the other auditors wouldn't be willing to provide, and then they're exposing themselves to risks on the other side. So <laughs> it, it, it is quite a, uh, a, a little uh, diplomatic uh, you know, uh, 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 problem right now that just needs to be worked through carefully, and it, there's no point in seeing the business interests of both the companies and the investors of those companies suffer because the the two nations can't uh, get on the same page about how the regulatory scheme ought to operate. Okay, well, we have been talking to Jim Kreisman of Simpson Thatcher and Bartlett. Jim, many thanks. Ying, always a pleasure and uh, happy to uh, chat with you. Okay, well, thank you. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma.